This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. Hello. Today we're going to be talking with Chris Ware, who's the author of Building Stories. That's a stupendous graphic novel that made the Publishers Weekly list of the top 10 books of 2012. We're also going to take a call from Calvin Reed, who's the senior news editor at PW. He's got plenty more to tell us about graphic novels and comics. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, as powered by Nielsen BookScan. All right. Looking at the fiction bestseller list, coming up at number one, we have uh, Tom Clancy's Threat Vector uh, debuting at number one. And uh, we also have uh, the usuals. We've got John Grisham, uh, who was on our list last week, and then Janet Ivanovich. And we have uh, James Patterson, David Baldacci. And we have a, uh, a novel by Glenn Beck. It's called Agenda 21. And uh, also at number 10 and was at the same place last week is J.K. Rowling. Now, I still haven't read The Casual Vacancy, but every time it it sits there on the bestseller list, clearly people are reading it. But I I feel like the buzz has died down, but it seems to still be selling pretty strongly. Yeah, perhaps perhaps on her name. I mean, perhaps people have just not gotten enough of her. I I think that's probably quite likely. And um, within the rest of it, it looks like a whole lot of genre fiction, as usual. Uh, it's very popular. True. I you know, being being the <laughs> science fiction editor, you know, I'm always going to be talking about the genre fiction. I grew up reading Clive Cussler. It's actually kind of heartwarming to see him still still up there. Um, yeah. Though you know, if we uh, if we tack down a little bit, I see that Jim Butcher's new urban fantasy novel, Cold Days, has dropped from number three, where it debuted, down right. to number. 15 on our list. Right. And then we have uh, Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl, which uh, last week uh, was number nine, and this week has jumped up to number four. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I don't. I wonder how much of it is is gift giving now. Is uh, uh, the holiday season that's been a big big seller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you'll you'll notice a few books. Uh, I I want to say back on the nonfiction list that that I think are probably pretty big gift books. Tell and, me about that. Well. You know, I'm. I'm. I mentioned this last week. I'm going to mention it again. Cookbooks, mm-hmm. really big. Uh, I mean, we have uh, Ina Garden uh, uh, on the list. I think last week she was number one, but now she and Bill O'Reilly seem to be battling out for the number one spot week after week. Bill O'Reilly with his book, of course, Killing Kennedy. Uh, so in Ina Garden's The Barefoot Contessa, foolproof recipes, um, and and this seems to be a book that people are will want to give, especially with the with with it in the subtitle foolproof. Yeah, I, f- I feel holiday. like that's that's a gift for your favorite fool. Oh, oh no. <laughs> that's a good. And like point. if somebody gave that's me a it. book that's like foolproof recipes, I'd be like, great. You you don't trust me. You don't even trust me with that's like a good the point. good housekeeping cookbook. No, no, no. We need something foolproof <laughs> for Rose. <laughs> right, right. You know, and I, I I might take that. I might take that a little personally, but I, you know, I, I tend to, to distance myself a little bit from the holiday gift giving. Mm-hmm. I, I just give people gifts as something comes up and I go, Hey, this seems like it would be great for so-and-so. Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, and also, I, I mean, coming up, uh, there's, uh, the Smitten Kitchen, Deb 
Perlman's uh, cookbook, mm-hmm. which is bouncing between number 10 and number 9. Uh, she started off as a blogger. And uh, this is a book that has gotten a lot of great press, a lot of great reviews, and is uh, apparently selling really well. Uh, Rachel Ray is on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the America's Test Kitchen, The Science of uh, Good Cooking. And then we have another person, uh, Reed Drummond, who's the Pioneer Woman Cooks, uh, also started off as a blogger. And the, the America's Test mm-hmm. Kitchen one, uh, that sounds much more my speed, the science, science, the science of cooking. Of course. That's, that's definitely uh, – Of course. I, I feel that the kitchen, the kitchen is a laboratory, and uh, that, that's definitely – more up my alley. Just in case anybody listening is thinking about what to get me for the holidays <laughs> right. I don't celebrate, um, that that's a great idea. That we, that now there. we could also use the uh, science fiction of cooking. Uh, that might be something. There have actually been science fiction cookbooks. Um, they they exist. No, I, I love that look that you're giving. Like, really? really? Yeah. Tell yeah, me about they, it. They exist. Um, uh, I haven't seen one in quite some time. Yeah. But they uh, they've 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 popped up. Sure. Every sure. once in a while through the years, and of course there have also been a great many books about food in science fiction they they those are out there too really? see this is this is making me want to go dig one up and find it for you know? oh, i'd love to show, oh so put it on my desk tomorrow i will, if you can, I will definitely if you can, do that in time for the holidays and i promise i won't give you the foolproof one <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much sure. thanks so much and now and so just talking about some books for uh men tend to like Music books written by men. I mean, it's a great gift book. I think many people. Uh, and up there, we have uh, Willie Nelson's "Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die." Mm-hmm. Uh, is is one still a great title? And uh, Neil Young's "Waging Heavy Peace." Mm-hmm. And um, Peter Carlin just uh, it, with his biography of uh, Bruce Springsteen called right. Bruce. That one just never tires. I mean, that's just a, an amazing. I, I, it's a really solid book. We gave a wonderful review to. Um, and uh, just I just have to mention, you know, as I'm as I'm as I'm looking at the list, another cookbook, and this is uh, F.L. Fowler. Uh, this is a parody. Uh, the, the, oh, right, the, right, right. You the, mentioned the, that. Fifty Shades of Chicken. Fifty Shades of Chicken. 50, nevertheless, a, uh, a a really standard. Good for cookbook. a laugh every time. Every single time. As long as those shades aren't pink. I probably made that joke last week too. No, you I, didn't. No, this you know, is I, a new I, one. I just, <laughs> This is a new one. I just, I'm, I, I feel that chicken should be well cooked. And, I agree. And if, if that means that you know you you have to slap it around a little bit, then that's <laughs> that's what you do. I, I bet there are things in there about how to truss a chicken. Most I, definitely, I think it might even be on the cover. I can only yes. imagine. Yes. yes. So I, the other thing that struck me about the nonfiction bestseller list yeah. this week, yeah. uh, I've, I feel like America, you know, books about America, American history, uh, American presidents are really. Yeah, pushing their way to the top again. And I I find this very interesting. You, like at number one, we have Bill O'Reilly's Killing Kennedy. Um, John Meacham's Thomas Jefferson is at number three. Sure. It's uh, it's fourth week on the list. Right. And then uh, Mark Owen's No Easy Day, uh, of course, which is about the... Uh, his his escapades, right? Uh, his and I I feel like these books are are for again a particular subset mm-hmm. of the population. That this is this is not. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Nonfiction is more your sort of thing, but I feel like it's not so much pop history, like really digging into history, as taking a particular political view and then. Um, Putting some history on it. Well, that's definitely the case with uh, Bill O'Reilly's book, uh, mm-hmm. and and you do have, I, I mean, uh, solid histories 
often sell well, especially by big name authors. But but you're right in pointing out the, especially you know on the, on you know coming out of the most recent presidential election, you have a lot of histories here, a lot of political histories. But you also uh, on this list have two. Um, kind of humorous takes uh, to history, to America, which you also brought up. Yep. And that's uh, um, uh, Stephen Colbert's um, uh, uh, No Easy Day uh, America Again. And then you also have Calvin Trilling's uh, presidential uh, campaign in verse. Now, Calvin Trilling is a New Yorker writer who has taken a look at the presidential campaign and has – put the entire thing in in verse. Wow. Yes, yes. And it's on the bestseller list. So you have politics, written by a New Yorker writer, in verse. Poetry. When's the last time poetry made the nonfiction bestseller list? That's that's this is a probably a long... probably that book of Donald Rumsfeld speeches rewritten with with occasional right, exactly. line breaks. <laughs> right, I remember that. Yeah, right, right. No, that's great. I'm, I'm gonna have to to look for that. That's interesting. Yeah. So you know, I. I since it's you know close to the holidays, right? I want to look at uh, take a look in the coming weeks uh, of what books are. Uh, I, I see um, we we have a with a calendar, an on sale calendar, Publishers mm-hmm. Weekly, which lists books from week to week. Which books are going to be pubbing, as we know, uh, or maybe our listeners don't know that they're given uh, books are given a set publishing date, right. most often Tuesday, and they are uh, built into a whole publicity and marketing process that builds up uh, from anywhere from six to mostly three months before publication. I was going to say these publication dates are set way in advance. Very you have time so. to make sure that your author can get on Oprah or to buy that big full page ad and you know, make sure that, that all the publicity efforts are coordinated so that by the time the book actually comes out, there's all this material in place to give it a big push and hope that it makes a splash. Right, exactly. And one that's coming out, and uh, we also often list uh, uh, um, copies, you know, you know, the number of uh, uh copies that they expect to print. Mm-hmm. But we've got one that, that's coming out called The Chinese Takeout Cookbook. It's by D- Diana Kwan. Uh, and this one, I think, is is pretty interesting that it's published right around Christmas time because many of it's my for Jew- the Jews. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, I, and <laughs> already I've been invited to quite a few uh, Christmas parties, but uh, uh, our Chinese Christmas parties. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, this is also a time of uh, New Year's resolutions. Uh-huh, and so true. what books are we going to have coming out this time? We have, uh, well, dieting, health Ugh. books, anything, anything to make See, I, I, I don't even yeah. want dieting books and health books put in the same category. I, I feel like that's really uh, not necessarily truth in advertising. I think dieting is so much more about control than really about health kind of more than a holistic health look mm-hmm. yeah exactly but they 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 go into those categories it's all about marketing it's all about marketing and so we have the dash diet weight loss solutions um this is maria heller she's a uh, uh she's uh, coming out this one's going to be coming out uh this week uh we also have the end of diabetes uh, this is Joel Furman's book. This is Harper One who's publishing it. And it's uh, the Eat to Live Plan to Prevent and Reverse Diabetes. So, that's a pretty big claim. That's a pretty big claim. Wow. Uh, but Joel Furman is a pretty big name, and they've got about 50,000 copies that they're uh, wow. hoping to drop. We've got uh, Wellness to Fitness, Pumped Up, Prayed Up, and Powered Up, uh, Donna Joyner. 
uh, Donna Joyner Richardson, I'm sorry. And uh, we have a couple more here. Uh, those might be the, uh, actually, those might be the only three that are uh, dropping right before Christmas, but there are quite a few more that uh, have been published in the previous months uh, and hoping to build word of mouth mm-hmm. and some advertising for it. And going back to the presence, I see yeah. uh, Rise to Greatness, which is David Von Drill's uh, biography of American Lincoln, uh, Abraham Lincoln, pardon me, uh, Abraham Lincoln is also coming out. Oh, right. um, so that's, uh, or is, pardon me, just came out. Uh, right. Oh, um, see. Yeah. And so it, you know, it looks like there's uh, people are continuing to play on that. And of course, on the Abraham Lincoln movie that's just out. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which I haven't seen, but I want to see. And on the fiction side, uh, I see a book a title that caught my eye, which is Great North Road by Peter F. Hamilton. And this catches my eye because I'm hoping to have him on the show with us next week. So that'll be an uh, entertaining conversation. His book oh, is perfect. coming out uh, right. just right at the end of December. And he's a science fiction writer. He is a science, science fiction, fiction writer. writer. Yeah, you, you know my weakness, Mark. I think we're going to have to talk about that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then uh, I think the biggest book that we have coming out, uh, uh, December 31st, uh, Jared Diamond. Uh, mm. People may remember him, the Pulitzer Prize uh, winning author of Guns, Gems, and Germs and Steel. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book is The World uh, Until Yesterday, What We Can Learn from uh, Traditional Societies. And... 350,000 copies. Uh, so they're, wow. they're, 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 they're going to be backing this up with a lot of publicity, a lot of marketing. and Hopefully uh, a lot of fact-checking because yeah. I've heard that uh, sometimes he takes a few shortcuts. Ah, well, maybe he'll have uh, prepared a little bit better this time. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Coming up next, we're going to be talking with Chris Ware, the author of Building Stories. Stay tuned. Hello, this is Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Rose Fox. Welcome. And we are here talking with Chris Ware, who is a spectacular author we're delighted to have on the show today. He's the author of a book called Building Stories. I should say the uh, the artist of a book. And uh, congratulations. He was, first of all, our one of our top 10 picks for Publishers Weekly. And uh, just last week, you were one of the top 10 picks for the New York Times. You must have been thrilled. And maybe a little surprised? Uh, yeah, extremely surprised, actually. It's not not something I expected at all. I didn't even think I'd be in the notable book list or, or any book list, for for that matter. And to be in there with, uh, with the, the full frontal fiction was, was pretty flattering, I have to say. So. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I mean, uh, and I don't know if you received any awards quite like this, or at least in, in this kind of recognition. I know you have for illustrations. Uh, well, back in 2001, the the, uh, the Guardian gave me their first book prize, mm-hmm. which uh, I thought was a mistake or some kind of clerical error or something like that. <laughs> but uh, so that that was very very flattering as well. So, but yeah, occasionally we cartoonists are are lauded for our efforts. But, right. Uh, a lot of other times we you know kept in seclusion. So, which is understandable because we're a strange genus. <laughs> well, we, we said your book uh, in our review, The Spectacular, Breathtaking Visual Splendor, make this one of the year's standout graphic novels. Uh, we also say that you provide one of the year's best arguments for the survival of print. 
Now, for our listeners, I, I want to describe the book just as, just as I see it. It's about, I want to say, 200 pages maybe of 12 or 14 uh, 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 separate pieces of work in the form of maybe pamphlets or or a newspaper. Uh, uh, and, and it's all, you know, graphic novels. They're all conceived to follow the story of what seems to be a, a woman who happens to be an amputee. I, I mean, how, how did you conceive of this? I mean, this well, uh, is such well, a grand project. As a, as, as a writer, I can't say that I can't claim uh, fidelity to any specific working method or to even any respectable kind of intellect, actually. I just, I, it takes so long to draw comics that one has plenty of time to figure out what one is doing along the way. And I've been working on this book off and on for 11 years now. It just started out as a single single strip for a uh, rather obscure Swiss publication. And then from there, I kind of mushroomed into, uh, into uh, something much more complicated, um, probably due to the fact that I I again not a not a very uh, good writer, so I things tend to just kind of get out of hand. But um, about two years of, of working into it, I I knew what the the form of it was going to be, i.e., a box with a lot of different books in it, and uh, wrote wrote from that point on with that in mind. So, so was this um, a collaboration with an editor? You said you started working with this Swiss publication. Um, now, obviously, you've moved on to something that's more book like how how is the concept survived that transition from one medium to another uh the, yeah there was i mean as far as working with an editor that was just purely because this publication had invited me to do comic strips about whatever i felt like doing which is a very uh, lucky place to be and i um from there i would occasionally do a strip for the new yorker under the same auspices basically just as if i was a short story writer but i happened to write with pictures instead of words hmm. um but it was never overall uh, edited per se, other than it went through the ringer of a, of a copy editor whom I felt horrible for because, of course, you can't search and replace a, a comic strip. Right. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. So so you, st- you, st- you started mostly as a, as a kind of a, a comic strip writer or comic strip illustrator. Well, I, get, I mean, I think it, it, the word illustration always kind of uh, seems a little um, maybe not quite what cartoonists do, at least I, I think ideally. I mean, uh, sure. to me, illustration means that you're that you're illustrating something else, like mm-hmm. you have a story and you're adding pictures to it. In in my, my own case and in other cartoonists of my generation and of my particular mm-hmm. pretentiousness, I guess, for <laughs> lack of a better word, um, it, cartooning is is a language unto itself, and we really we really try to to write stories with pictures. The pictures and the words then end up being inseparable from each other. In fact, we we sort of think in pictures and words. So I, sometimes I might start out with a a word or a phrase, but more often than not, I'll have an image in mind or even some sort of movement. Um, so it's it's really kind of a different way of thinking about storytelling, and not not just simply a way of taking a story and and trying to make it either more accessible or mm-hmm. dumb it down. That's not the, the case at all. It's, it's really its own language. So, We're speaking with Chris Ware, uh, the author of Building Stories, a graphic novel. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox. And Chris, you had just been talking about um, what it means to you to be a cartoonist rather than an illustrator. You said something about other cartoonists of mm-hmm. your generation. Who are you thinking of there? Are these people who've been an influence on you or people you've sort of grown up working with? Well, uh, 
pretty much everybody who takes what they do seriously and tries to do serious work, beginning with Art Spiegelman, certainly, who provided mm-hmm. by far the, the best example and probably will never be topped with, with uh, his graphic novel, Mouse. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, Art Spiegelman and Kim Deitch of that generation, especially Linda Berry, mm-hmm. who took the... the uh, what one thinks of as sort of an autobiographical voice and transformed it into a voice for fiction. She really sort of turned comics inside out and kind of gave comics their soul, I think. Um, before that, I mean, jumping even back one generation, you could think of Charles Schultz, who I think of as the first empathetic cartoonist. He's the first person to create characters not only for whom you felt, but mm-hmm. through whom you could feel as well, which is really the key towards making comics a, a sophisticated medium for expressing human pathos, I guess, for lack of a better word. And then more recently, uh, artists like uh, Seth and Charles Burns, Adrian Tomina, Dane Klaus, Ben Catcher, Gary Panter, Charles Burns, I said already. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Charles a lot, because we've been right. uh, traveling around together, and he's such a incredibly warm, nice guy, so he's on my mind, and he just had a book published by Pantheon as well called The Hive. Um... I always feel I should have a laminated card in my pocket whenever anybody asks me this question because there's always some horrible, glaring omission that I'm unintentionally making that I'll feel terrible about later. So. Oh, sure, sure. But Well, when looking at your artwork, it seems to harken back to, I don't know, maybe an early 20th century kind of style. I mean, there almost seems to be a, a nostalgia in it. I mean, am I reading into that? Could there be? No, I mean, you could see it that way. I think mostly that just kind of is an accident. I... Mm-hmm. I, I'm a, I, I was attracted to comics in art school because I went to art school at a time when artists were really, we really were kind of being told that whatever you do, don't don't make a picture of a thing that is what it is. Try to find another way around it. Uh, oh, wow. to do that, you're you're essentially illustrating, or you're sentimentalizing, you're appealing to. Any number then it's not art with a capital A. Yeah, I suppose. So, and to me, comics were a way of speaking completely directly to mm-hmm. an audience or to a reader. And the comics that did that best were the comics from the turn of the century up until, I think, around the 1930s or 40s. So for me, it was simply a way of being able to to work within a visual language that said what it meant and meant what it said without any sort of skein of theory or irony. Uh, clouding the issue, and I and I still to this day think comics have that advantage as a visual art. There's right. uh, there's a directness there that I, and and in, and in sort of an expectation of of trashiness that <laughs> if you don't like a comic strip, you just can it's very easily dismissed, if not even thrown away, which I think is really a wonderful relationship to have with the reader. There's not a preciousness about it. So, and I realize, of course, by doing a, I was just going to say, yeah, but you've done this, this book. huge book, <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, which... it's it's dangerous. You know, <laughs> right, you can right. hear a little too far. And I've wanted to make something beautiful, but I else, you know, and that you did. Well, that's nice of you. So, uh, you you mentioned about Art Spiegelman. Um, how did you come to know him? And were you a, a admirer of his work before, or? Uh... Yes, I, I, in high school, I, I started reading Raw Magazine, uh, I think when I was about 14 or 15, I discovered it in the back room of the comic shop I'd been going to for a few years. I, I should just say to our listeners, Art Spiegelman is the creator of Mouse, the, uh, right. uh, and the graphic novel series. Right. Yeah, yeah, please. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, no, 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 tell, yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, and he co-edited uh, Raw Magazine with his uh-huh. wife, Francoise Mouly, who's now the art editor, the cover editor of uh, New Yorker. Uh, and that was, it was and still is the most uh, sophisticated anthology, periodical anthology of comics I think ever created and formed an entire generation of cartoonists. Um, yeah, so I mean, I've been reading his stuff for years. I even tried to do a, a early graphic novel when I went to college based entirely around the the format of mouse, and um, mm-hmm. I did some really terrible comics for the student newspaper. And they were printed apparently on the back of a uh, of a review of uh, an early review of mouse that the Random House Clipping Agency sent to Art Spiegelman, and he saw my stuff on the back of it, found my phone number in the in the phone book, wow. and called oh, me up. One what day. a what a great coincidence! Uh, wonderful, my gosh. Uh, so, yeah, it was pretty pretty. I actually thought a friend of mine was playing a joke on me when I picked up the phone and said, "Hey, this is Art Spiegelman." So it's, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm the Queen of France. That's right. <laughs> no, but from there we started corresponding, and he's become one of my very dearest friends to whom I speak frequently and regularly, and I'm, I'm grateful to have known him for many decades now. I guess it's been 20 years. So. We're speaking with uh, Chris Ware, the author of uh, the graphic novel Building Stories. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox, and uh, we were just talking about um, this connection that you have with Art Spiegelman. It's a, it's a wonderful coincidence that you can you can build community that way just by happenstance. Do you what do you do now to kind of find other cartoonists and talk with them and work with them, um, as well as reaching out to your fans? Well, you know, I actually think most cartoonists it's our proclivity to not reach out, especially that phrase, or, or to touch anyone at all. <laughs> so this is more your distancing mechanism. I guess, yeah. I mean, we're, we were all sort of uh, socially trained to hide in the corner where we wouldn't get, you know, made fun of or spat upon or punched or whatever. And cartooning was sort of the result of that. But uh, my 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 best friend, Ivan Brunetti, uh, who's also a cartoonist, lives here in Chicago. We get together once a week. Mm-hmm for dinner and talk, and most of the time I just keep in touch with people from writing or talking on the phone. I think a few years ago before the internet, Linda Berry suggested there should have been a, a dedicated uh, cartoonist inking party line that could just you could just pick up and just talk for like, you know, hours at a time while you're inking, because for a lot of mm-hmm. we cartoonists, actually inking the work is sort of a, a brain-deadening or brain turn-offing kind of activities. In my own case, I find that when I'm inking, I, I go over past like childhood traumas, and I can get really emotionally worked up, so it's really good to have wow. something to think about. So, so can, you, can, can you talk to us about the process of inking? What, what is that exactly for those of us who um, have never inked? For any of never inked, yeah. You're a lucky man. <laughs> um, it, it, it's kind of different for every cartoonist, but for the most part, most cartoonists plan everything in some sort of malleable medium, generally mm-hmm. being pencil. In some cases, it's felt to pen, or they work through a series of tracing images. And then from that, they pick a more uh, sturdy paper medium, usually something along the lines of Bristol board. That's the traditional choice, and then uh, using either a brush or a old-fashioned Spencerian lettering nib, which would go back all the way to the mm-hmm. mid-19th century and be used entirely for producing beautiful handwriting. Uh, the lines are then sort of set in stone using a good old-fashioned carbon and gum Arabic. So I don't know how much longer they're going to make this stuff, but fundamentally cartooning is just a matter of yes and no, the black and white of, of paper and ink, so, and occasionally white paint when you screw up. So uh, 
Um, mm-hmm. That's about it. So you're in a lot of cases, you're simply tracing what you've kind of thought your way through. For a long time, I did. I inked directly on the board without any penciling at all, just to see wow. what would happen. But the, it's the, like doing uh, crossword I, puzzles in ink. Yeah, I don't know. It got, it got a little too tense. I know other cartoonists, certainly Gary Panter, who's one of the great geniuses of the of the 20th and now 20th first century, certainly of comics. He, I think, he works that way, mm-hmm. um, or has worked that way. It depends. Everybody's different. So, so, um, so there you are with these boards with pictures on them. How does that then get turned into the the book or the the box of work that we held in our hand? I mean, this is this thing is mammoth, and every every aspect of it is a little bit different. So, what was the production process like for making this gorgeous physical object? Uh, basically, it was just me sitting scanning it into my computer and then uh, <laughs> creating the books and then sending it sending the final files wow. to Random House and having them printed. I uh, really the thing I like most yeah. about comics is that uh, it's it's a medium in which if you want to you can control every aspect of it and I mean I designed the box I did the cover I did all the lettering and everything and then just sent it off and then the production manager at, at Random House Andy Hughes figured out a way to make it publishable by talking to printers mm-hmm. and figuring out the best way of uh, of uh, making it so, because it can't possibly be an inexpensive uh, endeavor <laughs> No, this in particular was pretty complicated because it's 14 different books. But in a lot of cases, it's just a single signature or pamphlet. There's a couple of hardcovers mm-hmm. in there. But uh, I gave them, you know, the paper stock that I wanted, the measurements and what they should look like. And right. One of the books actually is supposed to look like a little golden book. And it, yeah, it does. Uh, it, it does. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking that. Like, like a little kid's board book almost. Yeah, that, that format was invented by the, the Golden Book Publishing Company, which was then... Ah. Uh, sold to Random House, actually. So the printer, when they got this and they saw this, also turned out to be the printer now of Golden Books for Random House. Oh, that's handy. They came back to me with the actual Golden Book foil on it with the little bees and flowers, because I guess they figured that that's what it was supposed to be. But I had to you know, thank them and say, no, it's just kind of a nod. It's not the actual thing. But they had, a, I guess, a big roll of that tape ready to go to... <laughs> to bind those books. So speaking of bees, I, I have to ask, what's up with the bees? Like I you know, as I'm as I'm reading through it, you know, there's this this story of this woman's life, but also there's just some stuff with, with bees hanging out and talking to one another and, and being anthropomorphized bees. So where where did that come from? Well without giving too much I mean the book tends to focus around uh, female characters and that's really the only male character in the book or at least one that's presented as oh, a protagonist wow. in right. the so they're drones. Particular stories are supposed to. They're stories that the main character tells to her daughter at bedtime, and it's supposed to represent the sort of wobbly course that the brain can take when telling stories to a child, where you you kind of have to stick to a moral straight and narrow, and you don't want to you don't want to veer too off the road because you know you, even though the mind, the adult mind, can certainly do that because the story is essentially about about uh, infidelity and sex and struggling within oneself to, you know, try to be a good parent and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's also fundamentally about empathy, excuse me, <clears throat> about empathy uh, because I think the first, the first sort of empathies that we have as children are with animals and with insects. Mm-hmm. And there's probably not a child out there that doesn't see a bee and imagine that bee going back to their family, even though, of course, that's not really what what is going to happen, but that's how we like to imagine these things. So, Well, it's pretty lovely, actually. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's the idea. And it's, I just plopped it in there. So it's not immediately clear how it relates to the overall story, but hopefully as one reads the story, it becomes a little more uh, 
sensible and not uh, completely out of out of whack. One more question for you, and uh, you were uh, on the uh, cover. You you designed the cover for Publishers Weekly for the uh, best books. Also for I think the cover of the New York Times book review was it, and as well as poets and writers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And uh, but it, it appears that these three magazines weren't the first uh, of three to have this genius idea. The other was uh, Forbes, an unlikely place. Um, that I think ended up going with a different cover, which, uh, dis- as it was described, seemed like a really wonderful cover. Was there was it perhaps what you've done maybe controversial for them? Uh, well, first of all, I have to thank you again for picking my book as the best book. It's so oh, flattering sure. of you and very, very, very kind of you. And thank you for letting me redesign your logo and do all those other things. It was really, really, I, I we love your thrilled. redesign of the we logo. Were, we were thrilled. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you follow us on Twitter at all, but the PW Reviews account now has your version of the logo as um, as, as as the picture. Uh-oh, uh, factions now. Really, <laughs> right. Sorry. Great. I need to do that. Well, anyway, the thing that you're mentioning is actually it was done for Fortune magazine. Uh, there was an, uh, the art director there very kindly invited me to do a, a cover for them for their for their uh, Fortune 500 issue, and I was inspired to do it not only uh, because Fortune early on in the 30s was actually kind of a progressive magazine. There were WPA artists who did their covers, and they were it was really quite beautifully designed, oversized. They paid attention to paper stock. There was no text on the cover except for the hand-lettered mm-hmm. logo and very sometimes quite beautiful paintings. I think even. Maybe even Charles Sheeler, Charles DeMuth did work for it. So I, would, I wanted to kind of harken back to that tradition and redesign it back to that earlier look. And this was 2009, too, so there was you know quite a bit going on, needless to say, in the financial industry. And I mm-hmm. uh, I consulted with my friend, the radio host, Ira Glass, about all the uh-huh. things I wanted to put on it. And he said, yeah, that sounds all about right to me. And, uh, and he'd been working with his uh, producer, Alex Bloomberg, with the show Planet Money, and... Uh, and I'd followed a lot of their news reporting. So and I, as I was working on it, I realized, well, this probably is not going to necessarily be the sort of thing that they'll want to put on the cover. But I finished it anyway with, and sent it with an apologetic note, and they were very, very kind about it. And I I, uh, I didn't mean to upset anyone, but at the same time, I, you know, I wanted to portray things at least in a way that seemed... Were sure. The way I saw them, and I think it's, I think I could, it's fairly defensible. So... Um, not good. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so. well, two years out, and you've got three three covers for your for your work. So we're we've been speaking with Chris Ware, creator of Building Stories graphic novel. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I very much appreciate. it. I'm very flattered, and, and you have a nice day. You too. This is Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio, and this is Rose Fox. Next up, we are going to continue the graphic novel and comics theme. We'll be talking with Calvin Reed senior news editor at Publishers Weekly, who's going to give us the lowdown on what's happening in those media. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, uh, Channel 80. This is Rose Fox. And this is Mark Rotella. And we're going to be speaking now with Calvin Reed, who's the senior news editor at Publishers Weekly. He's also the co-editor of PW Comics World, and as Mark likes to say, an all-around cool dude. Welcome to the show, Calvin. <laughs> well, well cat. thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yes, <I have> <laughs> well, thank you. I'll live up to that uh, august introduction. So we were just talking with uh, Chris Ware about his building stories. Uh, I know you were a real champion of this book. 
Oh, Rolling Stones is fabulous. And, and by the way, uh, Chris Ware is the nicest freaking genius you'll ever meet. <laughs> let me tell you that right now. Besides just being talented beyond words. But the Building Stories is really the book of, of the year. Indeed, uh, I think it's the, it is the number one book on our best uh, best book list, our top ten list uh, of best books. Um, so, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I would. I, I'm flattered to be, uh, uh, you know, following him. Yeah. Now, this isn't this isn't the first time we had a uh, uh, graphic novel on our bestseller list, right? A couple of years ago, three, four years ago, maybe we had Stitches, or uh, has there yes, been another stitches, one? Uh, well, yes, we've had. Well, you know, for a while we had our own graphic novel bestseller list. Mm-hmm. We were still in the process of trying to to work something out about that uh you know i, I should past, qualify our top 10 list our top 10 oh yeah, yeah our top 10 for best books yes. yeah um we have in the past yes i, I think stitches made it one year i also think that genesis by uh our crumb oh, right. uh made because it, it was a huge bestseller that was also a huge bestseller uh when it came out mm-hmm. um, and you said this is you know, the best book of the year but can you uh, mention maybe a couple of other big graphic novels that have come out oh, uh, for 2012 I mean, the building stories was on our top ten uh, mm-hmm. best books of the year. But we also, in the comics department, we also put together our own list of five best comics of the year for the larger, you know, best books year. Uh, and um, just going down through that list very quickly, uh, one of which actually, my friend Dahmer by Durf Backdurf, a really unusual memoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, Durf Backdurf, really a wonderful cartoonist. Uh, for years, he had actually had a, a strip in. Uh, the old New York Press uh, giveaway downtown newspaper actually went to high school with the notorious serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Huh, um, no believe it or not, um, uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer, like the rest of us, was basically a dorky high school student. Unfortunately, you know. <laughs> oh, speak uh, for yourself uh, here. Yeah, I was uh, a nerdy high school student. Well, I was well, not well, a dorky well, high school student. I was a little bit of both. <laughs> I'm sure we could all uh, come up with the, the lively descriptions of our high school years. But uh, uh, Backdorf has really come up with a combination of kind of cautionary tale, um, tragedy, and really sort of. Uh, cultural self-exam and looking at uh, his life with with Jeffrey Dahmer, the signs of weirdness that he saw, and really uh, all of the times that perhaps an adult at the time could have intervened and who knows, maybe changed this guy's life. Um, but it's a really extraordinary book, one of our best books of the years, and it's actually turned up on on many lists also. Uh, now, I've got to ask about uh, sure. about memoirs. I mean, you said this is a memoir. Now, is yeah. and, and Stitches, which we just talked about, yeah. uh, was yeah. also a memoir. And then there was something called, was it? Cancer vixen uh, about a couple years back, yes. Uh, and now his yeah. memoir is is it was also a memoir right. of a uh, of a cancer survivor, yes. And book to do it did fairly well, as a matter of fact, yes. And is are graphic novels uh, memoirs as graphic novels something that is relatively recent or? Or is this? It's um, well, obviously, you know, probably, I guess, the most famous uh, to a general audience would be, you know, Mouse, and uh, which we had uh, you know, talked about with Chris Ware. Uh, right. Really look back uh, over his parents' life. Of course, uh, it, yeah. it, it's, it's a combination of biography and autobiography. But you know, in many ways, uh, the, the rise of the graphic memoir has kind of uh, been kind of a key in this new era over the last twenty years, as comics have broken out of the. Super- superhero ghetto and kind of reach a larger uh, and more diverse 
um, uh, audience. Um, so, and, and, and I have to say right now in, on the trade book side of the, of the business, as opposed mm-hmm. to the conventional comics industry, memoir is actually works very well as an, as, as single original graphic novels. So mm-hmm. yes, in fact, um, there are, um, several books that have done, and uh, in fact, there's several on our best comics list, uh, other memoirs. Well, almost as, as, uh, general, in general nonfiction, memoir is a, uh, hugely growing, uh, field as well, and I, re- I remember hearing about Alison Bechdel's books, right? Like Fun Home, yes. um, and what and was her most recent book, which is one of our best comics of the year. I was going to ask if that made your list. Yeah. Yes, from uh, from Houghton Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Yes, it's uh, Alice, Alison Bechdel's uh, latest mm. memoir, and basically she has done for her mother <laughs> what she did for her father in Fun Home, and really looked at her her um, sometimes really troubled relationship with her mother, but also really um, in her inimitable, high-powered, um, quasi-academic fashion, she's kind of looked at early develop- female early development uh, theories and how it's related to her life and to her relationship with her mother. It's like a combination of the brainy, braininess and, um, and weird indie comic mania um, together. We are speaking with Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at uh, Publishers Weekly. I'm Mark Rotella, Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox. So, um, Calvin, there's been some exciting news that's happened in the last couple of weeks in the comics world. There's been a, a big shakeup. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, um, um, Karen Berger, in case you don't know, is probably one of the most important uh, comic book editors that probably most consumers don't know about. What they mm-hmm. do know about is uh, the authors that she has published uh, at Vertigo. And Vertigo was an, is an imprint at DC Comics that was launched in uh, 1993 specifically to do non-superhero genre com- comics. And it was headed up by Karen Berger, who immediately started signing up authors like like uh, Neil Gaiman uh, to do uh, his Sandman series, Alan Moore, who was doing uh, the Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. uh, and later V for Vendetta, uh, Grant Morrison, who was doing The Invisibles, uh, Garth Ennis. In fact, a whole line of you know, a kind of a British invasion of distinguished uh, British comic book writers who really have kind of changed the landscape and really helped usher in this new period that I was talking about of reading of, of comics well beyond the, you know, tried and true superhero category that we all love, but really exploded com- the comics medium into a broader uh, trade book market reading audience. Now, I, I hear a lot from my comics reading friends um, about uh, an issue that's very much on the mind of comics fans right now, which is the representation of women in comics and also within the industry. So what does it mean from that perspective to have one of the most powerful women in comics stepping down? Well, uh, it, 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 well, um, in the long run, well, in the short run, it's troubling. Uh, in the long run, we're obviously going to have to wait and see. Karen um, is really, uh, well, put it this way, since uh, DC Comics went through a big reorganization in 2009, uh, 2010, where Warner Brothers, its parent company, the film studio, really uh, in an era where the big budget superhero movies uh, are generated by the kinds of comics that come out of these the comics imprints, really took closer oversight over DC, uh, kind of changed a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. moved all the digital to California. And um, uh, there was much speculation following that over the fate of Vertigo. Now, I've been you know, assured, and all the signs suggest that Vertigo will stay, though Karen is leaving. Um, what that will mean for the kind of books that they publish and the kind of relationship she had with her office, which is really a classic uh, editorial relationship with authors who who um, you know who really love her attention and who she's able to work with to really create extraordinary stories so it really it's a wait and see uh, I think we're all a little worried as to where what this means for vertigo and mm-hmm. its incredible tradition so it's really a we'll look and see it looks as though DC does want to continue the imprint um, but we will we will keep an eye on that and um, for fans who are a little concerned that you know, vertigo may become a shadow of its former self, though hopefully that is not the case and it will continue these traditions. But where else might those readers look for comics that deliver the same kind of sensibility, as you said, genre comics, but not superheroes, uh, with with that, uh, I would say, almost a, a literary sense, you know, a really high quality of both writing and art? Well, it turns out that we're we're living in a new golden age of comics. So uh, while Vertigo really helped to usher in this new era, really, I mean, you can look around everywhere from the conventional comic book industry, which represented by DC and Marvel, um, superhero stories and the like, but. Uh, the trade book industry uh, that we work in every day, um, Pantheon, which publishes Chris Ware, mm-hmm. um, uh, small presses like Oni Press, which publishes the fabulous Brian Lee O'Malley and his Scott Pilgrim um, series, um, Seven Stories Press, uh, 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 a well-known, uh, uh, I'll call it lefty indie press, mm-hmm. uh, has this year published the Graphic Canon, a three-volume collection of in really about 150 artists doing, taking the classics and recreating really homages to them in the form of comics. They're basically a, a series of shorter stories collected in gigantic anthologies that respond to all of the classics from, um, to, from prehistory right up to, um, um, you know, modernist uh, literature. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I mean, I can go down the list. Uh, first, second, which is, uh, a um, Macmillan's graphic novel imprint published um, Sailor Twain, uh, a novel this year set on the, the 19th century Hudson River. It's a, a gothic kind of ghost tale of mermaids and magical doings. On oh, that. neat. Wow. Um, you, you really can look around all over the place. Fantagraphics, another um, indie press uh, that publishes um, Love and Rockets, the the Hernandez brothers, uh, the the um, um, Chicano brothers that really kind of changed independent comics in the early 80s. So there are so many places uh, that you can look to now. Drawn in Quarterly, the Canadian publisher that uh, publishes you know, sort of one extraordinary book after another. We were speaking with Calvin Reed, co-editor of PW Comics World and senior news editor, Publishers Weekly. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox. And So, uh, Calvin, let's, I want to talk to you, I want to have you talk to us a little bit more about some of the uh, books, some of the uh, graphic novels that you see coming out, something, some of the stuff you're excited about. Uh, sure. Uh, well, that's the thing. There's there's so much. You know, on the can I just jump to the digital just really quickly because I think this is a yeah, sure, a, sure. great um, digital journal is coming out, and, I, and I'd love for for consumers to pay attention to it. Uh, uh, it's called Symbolia. It's an iPad journal. Of, it's called uh, Symbolia, a tabloid, a tablet magazine of illustrated journalism, and really what it is is an effort to create um, a 
a, it's actually a bi-monthly journal, digital journal of comics uh, and multimedia journalism. Basically, um, this is a new field of, of uh, nonfiction journalism done by comics artists, um, and Symbolia is going to collect it. Uh, it's a subscription, you know, um, it has a subscription business model, and it's put together by uh, Aaron Paulgren, who is a kind of former managing director of um, of the Media Coalition, which is a you know an alternative news source. She's a longtime comics journalism advocate, and this is one of the I think one of the more exciting new ventures to launch in the, the last couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for Symbolia. You can get it in the um, in the App Store, in the Apple App Store. Great, great. Now back yeah. to you. Back to maybe even a trend or, or a book that you're. Uh... Well, there's so many books. Let's see. Where do we start? I mean, I started with um, Building Stories, that's which is out now. Um, uh, but another book to keep an eye out for, and it's just out. It's it's a book called Prince of Cats by Ron Wimberly, mm-hmm. also published by Vertigo. Um, mm-hmm. It is a kind of hip hop recreation of Romeo and Juliet uh, as <laughs> uh, gang banging ninjas on the streets of Brooklyn, uh, and it's also written in this, the most fabulous uh, mashup of, of hip-hop English and iambic pentam- pentameter. Uh, it's just brilliant. Wow. I had him on my oh. panel at the uh, Brooklyn um, Book Festival, and it's one of the more imaginative books uh, I've encountered this year. Well, that sounds fantastic. Calvin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, I was just uh, wondering if you have any final recommendations for people who are going into this holiday gift-buying season, uh, if there's anything they might want to pick up for the comic fan in their life. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm gonna. I'll mention one quick uh, nonfiction title in the year that you know Lincoln seems to be in the uh, pop culture imagination. Mm-hmm. A book called The Hypo, the melancholic young Lincoln. It's by Noah Van Skever. It's published by Fantagraphics, and it's basically a recreation of Lincoln's life, a particular period in Lincoln's life, where uh, historians have more or less generally agreed that he was suffering from a clinical depression. Uh, Noah has kind of taken the historical research around this time and recreated it in the form of a, a nonfiction graphic novel that is an absolute delight, brings you even closer to Lincoln, and gives you a sense of, of the talent of this uh, young man. So look for the hypo, the melancholic young Lincoln by Noah Van Skeever. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. We appreciate you bringing us your comics and graphic novel expertise. Thank you. Okay, thanks for inviting me, you guys. This is Rose Fox on Publishers Weekly Book Radio. And I'm Mark Rotella. And uh, we want to thank you very much for listening. Join us again next week. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.